this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Lastaquick. Today, I'll be interviewing Jonathan Swanger about his book, The Notorious Georges, Crime and Community in British Columbia's Northern Interior, 1909 to 1925, published by the UBC Press for the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History. Jonathan Swanger is a professor in the history department at the University of Northern British Columbia, where he teaches Canadian history with a focus on law and crime. He's the author and co-editor of several noteworthy books, including The Canadian Department of Justice and the Completion of Confederation, Laws and Societies in the Prairie West, 1670 to 1940, and People in Place, Historical Influences on Legal Culture. He is also the author of Aspiration, a history of the University of Northern British Columbia to 2015, in which he explores the public campaign to set up the university and examines some of the challenges faced by the institution. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on Witness to Yesterday. Well, thank you for reaching out to me. I'm looking forward to this. by introducing your readers to Reverend C. Melville Wright and his address to the Presbyterian Church of Canada in Toronto in early June 1913, during which he so colorfully described Fort George as, quote, the very gates of hell. Was this description accurate? And what was the good reverend worried about? Well, when Reverend Wright appeared before the Presbyterian Congress in Toronto in early June 1913, there were several factors shaping his damning description of Fort George. First, he was keenly aware that the possibilities of personal achievement and notoriety within the social gospel movement were at hand. Here, perhaps, was his moment in the sun. If he spoke well... If he earned an enthusiastic reputation, his career, which had just begun, might take off and invest him with national standing and perhaps the kind of opportunities that might follow. Now, secondly, the gates of hell description also referred in Wright's mind to the specific community of South Fort George, one of the two white settler communities at the confluence of the Nechaco and Fraser Rivers in British Columbia's northern interior. Wright's benefactor, a chap by the name of George Hammond, was the entrepreneur selling business lots and housing lots in the community of Fort George, the second competing community. So as part of his scheme to build this community, uh, George Hammond had given Wright the land on which the Presbyterian Church stood, and undoubtedly, Reverend Wright felt beholden to Hammond. So Wright's description of South Fort George's northern hotel bar, with its patrons drunken excess, the three brothels sitting on an outcrop overlooking South Fort George, did not merely point to moral degeneracy, but also implied that Hammond's Fort George community was free of such outrageous behavior. 
As I wrote in the book, Wright's account offered potential settlers with a choice. If desirable, upright Christian settlers preferred Fort George to the seething den of iniquity in South Fort George, both Wright's church and his benefactor, Hammond, would profit. Now, in truth, not even the most enthusiastic booster of either community would have suggested that the local setting was one of well-ordered civility, with residents faithfully attending church services, avoiding all forms of strong drink, games of chance, and personal indulgence. So, while Wright's description was broadly accurate, on the other hand, the description would have been accurate for just about any community in British Columbia on the eve of World War I. Simply put, the entire province was a boozy and truculent place. To suggest that the Georges were somehow worse, more disreputable, more disorderly, and more depraved is simply not true. But to close the point, Reverend Wright had, in making his utterance, tapped into a stream of Canadian thinking. The imagined northern reaches were where many Canadians believed the bonds of civilization were shed and humankind kind of sunk to a lesser standing. In a nation where the sense of self is seemingly always exposed, Wright's imagery offering a comforting contrast between us those residents in southern Canada, and them, the residents elsewhere in the nation, was, in that, very comforting. His was a sentiment offering Canadians, southern Canadians, excuse me, with a sense of superiority and refinement. It was deliberate at a time when many white Canadians were worried about the nation's imagined decline, the negative influences of modernity, the threat of immigration to national identity, the nation's retreat, perhaps from Christian practice and belief. The country was worried on the eve of World War I. So after all, we must remember, when he made his utterance, he was speaking not just to the Georges, but indeed to a battle going on across Canada. An endeavor, and I quote him, worth all the struggle when we can defeat sin at the very gates of hell. So in your opinion, why did the Georges gain such a notorious reputation and was it warranted? Well, this is the question that really drove my research. Uh, people might be surprised to learn that historians' research is often sparked by things they encounter in contemporary society. In 2013, McLean's Magazine published an article describing Prince George as Canada's crime capital. The community response was unmissable. People were up in arms. A person on the street feature in the local media asked several, several folks what they thought of the magazine's feature. And one young woman said, Prince George always gets a bad rap. Well, as a historian, I was compelled to ask about the origins of this bad rap. The Quest sent me off to historic newspapers and then the archives to see what would be found. Now, in a nutshell, the evidence indicated that the Georges were no more disorderly than anywhere else in British Columbia. Further, like every other community, yes, there were troubles, there were difficulties, 
and even scandals and controversy. But the responsible people were not those who were typically blamed. Those who were blamed were the racialized Chinese, the very tiny black population in the Georges, the indigenous population, and the mixed heritage folks in the community. They were the folks who were blamed. The evidence, however, suggested that most crimes, serious and otherwise, uh, was committed by white men. So in some instances, to then make this even more telling, a number of these white men were elected municipal figures and opinion leaders. Essentially, while the Georges have had their share of trouble with crime and violence, and thus behavior that in time lent itself to the image that McLean's had exploited, a closer examination reveals that the origins of this reputation do not rest on any demonstrable evidence of a disproportionate volume of disorder, crime, and violence. In the book, you claim that the so-called respectable white settlers often absolve themselves of blame for the city's ill repute by placing blame on the immigrant and indigenous population for both the crime rate and the city's poor reputation. Can you talk about some of the racial dynamics at play during this period? Now, again, we have to, to situate the Georges and indeed British Columbia in the, in the larger setting. Most communities in early 20th century Canada, the inclination was to attribute any local problems, particularly those associated with vice, with crime, and with disorder, on indigenous peoples, on mixed heritage peoples, on racialized Asian and black residents, and on non-preferred Europeans. This inclination has been, of course, demonstrated time and again within the historical literature. And the appeal of this scapegoating is simple in that it offered an easy answer to such troubles, blame non-white people. Thus the local newspapers in the years straddling the Great War would offer unapologetically racist descriptions of these residents with an assurance to readers that they were overrepresented in the policing reports and in the business of the local police court, as well as in the docket of the county and Supreme Court. Again, the evidence demonstrates this was not true. Now the problem here, both in the Georges and again across the country, is that the police gaze, and what we mean by this is that discretionary decision as to who warrants a second look, uh, who should be stopped, who should be talked to, who should be arrested, who should be charged, that the discretionary gaze invariably reflects then contemporary racist notions of uh, who's responsible for disorder and who's responsible for trouble. Thus, in the very first instance, the police gaze was a reflection of a prejudicial society. This inclination is, of course, picked up at every court level, and then these matters are played out and depicted in the local newspapers. For instance, one of the events that I, I detail in the book is the April 1921 riot, such as it was then called, in what was described as the Chinese district of Prince George 
In contemporary Prince George, the Chinese district was one street, which is still called Quebec Street. Um, and there's only one building left there that is of any uh, connection to the then Chinese district. This outbreak within the racialized Chinese community reflected political rivalries between the traditionalists defending the last dynasty and the nationalists backing Sun Yat-sen. While the local newspapers attempted to explain some of the issues at play, the reportage boiled down to assurances to respectable residents that the Chinese were inscrutable and largely badly behaved children. Now, in the midst of these disturbances, city council announced that the crime troubles in Prince George were largely attributable to bad characters within the black community. And yes, they employed the N-word in making this allegation. And yes, the total population of Prince George at that time for residents of, of black heritage might have numbered 30. And so to suggest that these 30 individuals were somehow responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime was simply nonsense. It was racist scapegoating. So combined, we see an example here of this discretionary gaze. The racialized Chinese community was reduced to an image of infantilized drug users, while the black community was caricatured as a collection of brutes and Jezebels. These broad-struck images were much easier to consume than the troubling possibility, as demonstrated in the police rosters, as demonstrated in the court dockets, all of which pointed to white men as being far more responsible for both petty and felonious crime in the Georges. It was simply a more appealing explanation. Well, in two chapters, you examine policing in the Georges. You also argue that the police forces played an active role in shaping their public image in the community. Could you explain the evolution of policing in the region and comment on how exactly the police played a role in shaping public perception of crime? Policing in the region goes through a number of different phases or steps. Uh, the initial phase is the campaign to attract the stationing of a British Columbia Provincial Police Constable, a BCPP Provincial Constable in South Fort George. This takes about two, two and a half years of lobbying before the constable is appointed to the area. And so the British Columbia Provincial Police is a provincial force and thus sort of an arm of the provincial government. Fast forward to 1915 when the city of Prince George is formed in this sort of uh, rough triangle between South Fort George and Fort George. And one of the first orders of business in the city council was the decision to create a city police force in Prince George. City councilors had really no idea what the police force would do. Uh, they certainly weren't overzealous in assigning responsibilities to the police force. They were sort of a glorified dog's body for the municipal council. So then you get the introduction of this city police force, a force that will last from 1915 to 1925. The third phase is around 1919, the uh, Royal Northwest Mounted Police appear in Prince George and are stationed there by and large to go after Bolsheviks, 
troublemakers and draft dodgers from the First World War. So when we start to kind of measure up the situation, it's arguable that the Georgias were over-policed because we've got three separate police departments working here. And this does not include the provincial alcohol enforcement agents that periodically skulk in the town and try to arrest people for bootlegging. So the police present here is, is, is quite marked. Um, now, as to this notion of how one fashions a public identity, um, this is a fairly standard, indeed perhaps an aged uh, argument about the police. And the point is fairly simple. The way they go about their duties, the way they identify what's important for the police to deliver to the community, contributes in a direct and demonstrable way to the way that the public views them. So for instance, if the police acted as an arm of burgeoning governmental services, doing everything from delivering the mail, to birthing babies, to checking crops, to simply being a point of contact with the broader community, the public em embraced this kind of sense of what it was that the police did. The police were helpers, they were assistants, they provided counsel, they were sort of ever-present, and they were a reminder that yes, you're part of a larger society, even if you don't see much manifestation of government action here. When the police begin to shift their behavior, and this begins right around the end of World War I and carries on in sort of a, a slow method of, of development throughout the 1930s and the 1940s. But when the police begin to shift their behavior from that facilitator role, from that helpful role, from the role of being a peacekeeper towards a new activity, that of crime fighting, then the public sense of the police and whether or not they are effective shifts accordingly. Thus in the Georgias, for much of the period that I studied, the police were more apt to be seen and to behave as peacekeepers. They endeavored to prevent, or perhaps more accurately, to limit disorder before it became criminality. In practice, this meant that they maintained a presence in the community, they offered a word to the wise when situations might appear to be moving towards trouble. And they generally worked at making sure potential triggers for disorder were kept to a minimum. So for instance, they made sure that people weren't starving so they didn't turn to thievery to feed themselves. That would be a typical sort of peacekeeper police function. It's only in the post-World War I era that the police in the Georges, and particularly the British Columbia Provincial Police, began moving towards that modern notion of crime fighters. But that was, as I said, a very gradual process. And it's a process that we see in British Columbia, we see it across the nation, and indeed we see it across the Western world. So again, what's happening in the Georges is a reflection of what's happening elsewhere in Canadian society. You introduce us to many fascinating historical characters in the book. I found the Daniels family particularly interesting can you tell us a bit about father and son and how their lives reflected and maybe perhaps shaped the character of the community? The Daniel men are uh, sort of an acquired taste. Uh, the father is a stipendary magistrate and the son is a bellicose newspaper editor. They are, just as characters, intriguing. Uh, I couldn't say they're necessarily likable, um, 
but in a fashion, they represented the type of figure that was commonly found. Their presence and influence are oversized. Uh, the younger Daniel comes to the Georges after a brief stint in the Merchant Marine, and then as a laborer on river scows in the northern interior. He then switches course and decides to establish a newspaper, the Caribou Observer, in the community of Cornell, that is about 100 kilometers to the south of present-day Prince George. After a few years of running the Observer, Daniel leaps at the opportunity of starting a different newspaper, the Fort George Herald, in South Fort George. Now, akin to many newspaper editors, he was a hometown booster. And it was in that role that Daniel Jr. Uh, set a somewhat truculent environment for newspaper commentary. No criticism of South Fort George was too small for Daniel to attack, and no blemish on the community's reputation was too large to leave unquestioned. Essentially, he was of a type, a newspaper man who appeared in many Canadian communities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And in his editorial and news columns, he felt it necessary to battle on behalf of his chosen home. Now, it's in that role that Daniel Jr. provides an opportunity to defend any controversial decision that Daniel Sr., Charles Daniel, made as a stipendary magistrate. Trained as a lawyer in England, and then taking up professional practice in British Columbia, Daniel Sr. arrives in the Georges sometime late 1914 or early 1915, and because of Conservative Party ties, is appointed as a stipendary magistrate. This work places Daniel Sr. in the position of sitting in judgment over misdemeanors in the Prince George Magistrate's Court, as well as overseeing preliminary hearings for cases scheduled either for the county or Supreme Court sessions. Daniel Sr. is unendingly convinced of his own wisdom, and he's disinclined to accept the proposition that his reading of the law could ever be wrong, regardless of who the other commentator was. So he very quickly got into scrapes with the city mayor, city councillors, the city solicitor, uh, and indeed the local police. So he is a difficult, if colorful, individual. His term on the bench is marked by a number of pretty significant blow-ups, one of which he takes on the first mayor of the city, and the second of which the city council blames him for Prince George attracting, quote, underworld figures and criminals because they felt he was soft on crime. And it was in these instances in which father gets in trouble that we see both father and son mounting arguments in defense of the decisions made in the newspaper in which the son was the editor. Now, the combination of this, of course, made them an undeniable force for good and for bad in the Georges. They were opinion leaders, and as such, were very much part of then contemporary conversation. In the final chapter, you introduce us to several criminal law cases that illustrate some of the racial tensions and patriarchal assumptions of the era. 
Could you tell us a little bit about the tension within the Chinese community and the case against Edith Fry? Well, as I've, I try to emphasize, akin to all Canadian communities in the early decades of the 20th century, the Georges were unapologetically racist. Local residents, like the vast majority of British Columbians, subscribed to the ideas of what Premier Richard Bride envisaged as a white man's province. It's, it's a little bit of gobsmackery for contemporary students to encounter a politician who ran on the platform of ensuring that British Columbia would be a white man's province. As such, the newspapers and indeed police correspondents provide uncounted examples of untroubled and I would argue unthinking racism. This, as I've suggested, is hardly surprising given the time and given the predominant ideas of those years. It's an outlook that produces the controversy in the spring of 1921 when the local, and I emphasize again, the tiny black community is blamed for Prince George's bad reputation. It is also a perspective that constructs and reinforces negative, and I argue, largely inaccurate images of the local indigenous population, the mixed heritage population, the racialized Asian population, along with that of the black community. Well, the consequences are in hindsight predictable. Although John Daniel, as newspaper editor, espoused some awareness of what was going on in the Chinese community, you know, revealed some awareness of the tensions between the nationalists and the defenders of what proved to be the last dynasty, there is precious little evidence that the community was all at all interested in this. Still, it must be emphasized in these attitudes towards foreign-born people and people of color, the Georges were wholly consistent of that which was evident across the province and indeed the nation. This is in no way meant to be an apology for these attitudes, but it does reflect the evidence of how Canadians viewed the world in the years leading to and the years straddling the First World War. So now on a different front, we have Edith Fry. Edith Fry is one of a couple of cases in which a wife is accused of murdering her husband. And it gives us, I think, a telling and perhaps a appalling demonstration of domestic violence and violent misogyny. Hers is one of two cases where I explore this in the book in which the wife is accused of murdering her husband. And my broad approach to this is trying to frame these cases as examples to some newspaper readers, to some commentators, that there is, in quotation marks, something, a vague and often undefined something that is wrong in the Georges and the Northern Interior. It's sort of a half-remembered story of, well, didn't I hear something about the Georges? Wasn't there that news story? And people can't quite nail exactly what they're trying to recall, but the overall taste of the recollection is, there's something wrong up there. There's something amiss. Now, in a society that expected deferential wives concentrating on home and hearth, and wives who unquestionably accepted a secondary role behind one's husband 
to allegedly murder him is worrying in this extreme. Women, this society was inclined to believe, didn't do such things. So if a woman turned to murder, there must be something, again, that notion, something awry, something wrong with the DNA in British Columbia's northern interior. It's a place that makes people do things that otherwise they would not do. As such, in my treatment of Edith Fry's case, along with several others, I try to present a glimpse of how these cases were used, how they were constructed, how they confirmed, and then how they reconfirmed the Georgia's reputation as we moved beyond the 1920s. Indeed, that imagery of that Prince George business has become the dominant motif in the century after 1925. This is the way that people talk about the Northern Interior. And it owes something to cases like Edith Fry's, where this woman did this very unwomanly thing of killing a husband who was unquestionably abusive. In the epilogue, you write that culture, after all, comprises stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. I find that idea fascinating. Could you explain it to our listeners? You know, and, and I wish I could lie and claim that I came up with that, but I, I didn't. I, I, too, think it's a fascinating bit of insight, and, and it's taken from cultural anthropologist Clifford Gertz. Uh, my usage runs in a couple of different ways. First, for both the historic and, indeed, the contemporary residents of the Georges, they tend to view themselves, as does almost anyone in any community, in broadly positive and commendable terms. People think that their lives are sort of the standard thing. When there are problems or issues in the community, local residents can reassure themselves that these incidents don't reflect the real residents of the city, but rather, Trouble is imported from outside. So trouble comes from elsewhere. It's never about us. It's about bad apples coming from here or bad apples coming from there. It's about influences that we can't control. And in the George's case, both in the years straddling the Great War and ever since, that outside can be as distant as the lower mainland or east, just a general east of British Columbia. Regardless, their truth, their imagined truth, is that trouble does not reflect the attitudes and the outlooks and the behavior of genuine residents. Well, this reassures them. It reassures local residents that when there is trouble, it's not about them. Now, at the same time, commentators and opinion leaders outside of the northern interior also subscribe to similar ideas and images. And in the case of the Georges, they tend to subscribe to images that are caricatures and stereotypes, images of the drunken logger, images of the railway navvy who gets in a fight and spends all his earnings in a wild weekend at the Hotel Northern. These characters and stereotypes are extraordinarily pervasive. From the Southern perspective, they imagine that the typical 
or the normal in the interior is just shy of chaotic and all too often violent. Your listeners in Ontario can resurrect their own version of this if they want to poll their neighbours of what they think about Sault Ste. Marie. Ask them what they think about Northern Ontario. And fascinating work has been done on this image construction in the context of Northern Ontario and Southern Ontario. So it's, again, it's not just limited to Northern British Columbia. There's just rather this construction of those other people. For example, in one of the cases I examined in the book, um, there was an exchange between a defense attorney defending a man accused of murder and in so doing proposed to the British Columbia Provincial Police Constable that the sight of a battered and bloodied man staggering along the streets of South Fort George would have been a common, unexceptional event. This was an everyday happening. No one would have even noticed it. The chief, of course, rejects this in the whole. But the assertion lends itself to this point, that not only do the stories we tell about ourselves generate a sense of ourselves, they also serve to inscribe an identity on others. And this is, for my reading of the evidence, a prime engine in construction of the imagery of the notorious Georges. Basically, this exchange between the defense counsel and the chief constable provides the opportunity for an individual who bears witness to the trial or reads of the exchange in the newspaper to conclude, well, while we here at home may have our difficulties, at least we're not exposed to the enormities of life in the Georges. So that while there may be crime, there may be problems, at least we're not in Prince George, at least we're not in Sault Ste. Marie. And this is that sort of defensive construct. It's an impression that, at least in the case of the Georges, is not supported by historical evidence. Indeed, these images exist with complete disregard to the historical images. Well, your study of the Georges is absolutely fascinating and your insights go well beyond what was happening in British Columbia around the World War I time period. Thank you so much for joining us today on Witness to Yesterday. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, it's just lovely. My guest today has been Jonathan Swanger. He's the author of The Notorious Georges, Crime and Community in British Columbia's Northern Interior, 1909 to 1925, published by UBC Press for the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press.
My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on September 19th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.